Okay, we're going to turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1. I'd like to read a little bit. Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. It says here, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. In chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to, to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. As we celebrate this event, as I said previously, nobody knows for sure the exact day on which Jesus was born. The important thing is he was born. 
Nobody knows the month. Nobody knows the year, for that matter. But the fact that it happened is what we believe. You know, the exact date, the exact season is inconsequential. We celebrate the fact that it did happen, and that's what we believe. The Christmas season is a celebration of miracles, and I'd like to talk about four different miracles that happened in this account. And I hope that you'll consider each of them, and I hope that as we discuss these things, it'll make this season more important to you and more miraculous, if you will. The first miracle of God in this season is the fact that at this time, God became human. God became human. Now we know that God is eternal. He never had a beginning. He has always existed. Now that's almost impossible for our minds to fathom because the human mind thinks of things with a beginning and an end. We think about the day we were born. Before that, we didn't even exist. But we came into existence on the day we were born. And we count the years that we're alive and we celebrate with birthdays. And then the day will come, if Jesus doesn't return first, that we will die. So our whole lives are patterned with the revolving of the earth on its axis. We count days, morning and night. We count months, we count years. Uh, God never dealt with that. Throughout all of his existence before this happened. Now, at this point in time, God became man. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was limited to time. He did count days, uh, you know, as the sun rose and the sun set. And he, you know, took note of months and years and, and everything just like we do. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1, the Gospel writer John gave us a little bit of insight that the other Gospel accounts don't. The Synoptic Gospels don't talk about this, but John did. He said in John 1, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, with a capital W. Of course, we know that refers to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in his role as the Son of God, he was with the Father, but he as well is God. God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So he was the creator, the creator of everything that exists today. Notice verse 14. It says, the Word became flesh. That's what we're celebrating today. The Word took on human flesh, which he didn't have prior to this. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this Word was distinct from the Father, but was also God. And he is the one who came to become one of us. As Pastor Dave was alluding to in his offering message, we did not have the ability to reach out to God, to reach up to him. So what he did was he reached down to us. He stooped down to our level to become our savior, something that was so necessary for us because we were lost in our sins. 
So it was God who took the step. He stepped down to our level and became one of us. This was necessary for us to be saved. Notice also in Philippians, and Pastor Dave also alluded to this passage in his uh, little talk. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. The Apostle Paul said this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, just as John explained in his gospel, he was there eternally with the Father. He was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing. That's what it means to be human compared to God. Nothing. He made himself nothing to become one of us. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus maintained his divinity. He was, he was fully God, but now he became fully man through his mother Mary. So the word of God came to his creation in the form of a newborn baby. And that was a miracle. It had never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. It was a plan of God to rescue us from our sin. And you know, it was a plan that predated Jesus' birth. It was a plan that predated the creation. You know, in the book of Revelation, it talks about Jesus being the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. That plan was already in place. It was just a matter of time for the right timing to happen. And that's when the father sent his son down to this earth, to be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. Now that brings us to the second miracle. Not only did God become man, the miracle of the virgin birth. That's something that has only happened once in history. It has never happened again. It has never happened since. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, because it, it takes a miracle from God for this to happen. You know, if Jesus would have been born of Mary and Joseph the natural way, <laughs> the normal way, the way all of us had been born, nobody would have believed his divinity. It was God's plan to come up with something unique, something different. So it says in Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, in other words, before they had sexual relations, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we have a set of parameters as human beings as to how things should happen. Why? Because that's all we've experienced. That's all we learned in school. How is a child born? Well, here's the routine. Here's what has to happen before a child can be born, before a woman can give birth. But you know what? God as creator has the ability to supersede the laws of creation. And that's exactly what he did. The created world must obey his will. And from time to time, he intervenes in the human experience and he performs a miracle, something that doesn't make sense, but nevertheless, it shows us his power. You know, there's a scripture in Matthew 19, verse 26, which says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, verse 26. So never give up hope. God is able to reach out beyond the normal, physical way things are done in this world because he's in control. He created it all. He can manipulate it in whatever way pleases him and whatever way meets his will. So a virgin can give birth to a baby, and that's what happened in Jesus' case. So we see that the first miracle, God became human, the incarnation, he took on carnality, the incarnation. The second miracle, a virgin gave birth. And even in Mary's day, she was questioning it, thinking, well, how can this possibly happen? And she was encouraged by the angel. The Holy Spirit is in charge here. The third miracle is the miracle of salvation for the human race. The miracle of salvation for the human race. We'll turn to John 3 and verse 16. Now let's face it. As we started reading our Bibles, we came to understand that because of our sins, we are all doomed. We're all, we are all doomed to death because we are sinful people. And that goes all the way back to uh, the Garden of Eden and what God told Adam and Eve. You know, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for this one tree. Don't eat of that tree because if you do, in that day you're, you're going to die. Not that you're going to drop dead when you eat it, but you're as good as dead. Because you've disobeyed me, you've disobeyed my instructions, and it's sin. So we all had to learn that lesson. You know, we can't blame all sin on Adam and Eve because we've all had the same attitude that they had. And we've all questioned God and disbelieved God and went against what we knew God to command in our lives. So we're all guilty. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So we're all included in that group. And furthermore, we're doomed. We're as good as dead. But God decided to do something about that, to rescue us from that death penalty in spite of our sins. So this brings us the miracle of salvation for the human race. It says here in John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world. So this is what motivated him to do it. Because he created us and he loves us in spite of our disobedience, in spite of our rebellious attitudes toward him. We talked about this being the, the fourth 
Sunday of Advent, and we talk about the candle of love. And his love is represented in this season. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, what we deserve because of our sins. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So notice what the requirement is. God doesn't say, well, in order to be saved, you got to reach a certain level of righteousness in your life. And, you know, when the final judgment comes, we're going to get out the scales and measure everybody to see who is good enough versus who was just not quite good enough. No, it's based on belief. It's based on belief. God knows that we're sinners. What he calls us to do is to believe in his son, the son of God, to believe in his sacrifice, to have faith and confidence in it, that we are rescued, that we are saved, that we have been redeemed from that death penalty by believing in him. Now, sure, we're called on to obey God. We're called on to try to live the best life we can possibly live. But that's not the basis of our salvation. A couple of times he says here, whoever believes in him shall not perish. It's a matter of faith. Amen. It's a matter of faith. You know, Jesus one time said, when the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith on the earth? Faith. That's what we're called to do, to believe. We are not capable of saving ourselves. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his sacrifice on the cross can save us. Only that sacrifice on the cross can pay for the wrath of God, as the Bible says. So good news was preached that the human race could now be saved from the penalty of their sins. Jesus Christ would serve as the perfect sacrifice to atone for sin. He was the lamb without blemish. His sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God to pay the death penalty for our sins. And if you acknowledge his sacrifice in your life, you will be acceptable to God. Jesus died for the whole world, okay? But that doesn't apply to you until you say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I repent of my sins, and I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Then, and only then, does it apply to you. You must make that decision. You must make that confession. And when you do, Jesus becomes not just the Savior of the world, but he becomes your Savior. And that's what determines if you're going to have eternal life. <laughs> because as soon as we believe, yes, we become heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So keep believing. That is the foundation of our faith. And that brings me to the fourth miracle. So we've seen the first miracle is God becoming human. The second one is the miracle of the virgin birth. Third one is the miracle of salvation for the human race. And the fourth one is what I'll call the miracle of belief. The miracle of belief. We must believe. 
We're called upon to believe Jesus Christ, who he is and who we are in him. We're beloved sons and daughters of the Father. Turn with me to Matthew 16. And I'm going to show you that this belief that we have is a miracle from God. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 15. This is when Jesus was questioning the disciples and asking them, well, who, who do people say that I am? You know, I've been doing this ministry now for quite a while, several years. What is the reaction? Who do people say that I am? Verse 13, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who does people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, kind of come back to life. But what about you, Jesus said. He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Notice verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Belief is something that is revealed to us by God the Father. It must be revealed to us by the Father in order for us to believe now, I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is an area of theology, if you will, that I, I admit I don't know all the answers. Why are we sitting here in this room today worshiping this wonderful God? And why are so many people outside not paying any heed, not showing any interest, just on with their lives, doing this or doing that. They've got other uh, issues. They've got other goals in life when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to belief and living a life of belief. It's just not important to them. Why is that? <laughs> I've often asked myself the question, why am I here and so many people out there are not? And if you talk to them and try to encourage them along these lines, they'll have nothing to do with it. They don't want to hear anything about it. What makes me different from all those people out there? What makes you different from all those people out there? I wonder about that. <laughs> and, and I don't know if I have all the answers. But as we just saw here in the scripture, who Jesus is and belief in him and acceptance of him as Savior is something that is revealed to us by the Father. Truth must be revealed by God, but the effectiveness of his revealed word is determined by how the hearer receives it. So God certainly has a big part to play in it, and two maybe a lesser extent, we have a part to play in it. You know, in Matthew 13, just a couple pages back here, there's a parable of the sower and the seed, which I know we have all read, read several times over the years. Matthew 13, verse 10, the disciples came to Jesus after he had given this parable about, about the sower and the seed, and they asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, 
but not to them. Wow. I never realized that. Something has been given to me and to you that a lot of people out there in the world have not received. That's humbling. That's unbelievable. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, Jesus said, but not to them. So whoever has... So if you've got understanding of the secrets of heaven, if you understand the gospel and who Jesus was and why he came, where he is now, and that he's coming back in the future, whoever has that information will be given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Then he quotes an Old Testament scripture here. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, Jesus is speaking to you now, blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. It's talking about the gospel, and that it makes sense to you, and that you keep that in your heart, and it dictates the way you live your life. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. That's humbling and mind-boggling at the same time. Why is it that we receive these things? That we hear them, it makes sense to us. We long to read God's word. We long to come and worship him. But so many others don't have that in their life. Truth must be revealed by God, but the effectiveness of his revealed word is determined by how the hearer receives it. That's what the whole parable of the, the sower is about. You know, he throws the seed, some lands on rocks, some lands by weeds, but some lands in good soil. And it takes root, and it grows, and it produces. Not everyone has the ability to fathom the depths of God's word. That ability is given by God. It's not the result of human cleverness, not that we're a smarter group of people here. We're not. There's a lot of people out there that are, more, that are smarter than we are. So what is it that, that makes the difference? Why are we here and those folks are not here? I believe that it has to do with humility. As I read the scripture, I think it has to do with humility. You know, in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. We just read the story about Mary. She was a humble woman, young woman. And that's why God chose her. She, was, she had humility. She didn't think too highly of herself. And that's what I think attracted God to her, why she was chosen, 
and not so many tens of thousands of other women at that time in that location. It's about humility. You know, to be saved, like I said, you can hear the gospel, but it takes humility to be able to admit that you're a sinner. And there's a lot of people in this world who will not admit that because right away they want to compare themselves to other people who are worse than they are. And they'll say, well, compared to them, I think I'm pretty good. But we're a group, and I don't know why, but God has helped us to see ourselves as we really are, sinners in need of a Savior. And we're not too proud to admit to God that we have sinned. Kind of reminds me of the story of uh, the two men who went into the temple to pray, and the first one, who was filled with pride, in his prayer he said, God, I'm so glad that I'm not that guy. <laughs> that, that ragged guy who, you know, looks like he hasn't taken a bath in a week, and, you know, I'm, I pay my tithe on a regular basis. I do this. I do that, God. And this poor guy over here, all he could do was bend down, bow before God and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And after Jesus told that story, he said, who do you think left that temple justified by God? And the answer was, that poor, humble guy who wasn't afraid to admit that he was a sinner. He didn't boast about all the good stuff he did. He felt okay humbling himself and admitting that he was a sinner and in need of a savior. Finally, I'd like to turn to 1 Peter 1, verse 8. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. The miracle of belief. God helps us to do that, but it's something that we've got to do. We've got to believe. We've got to have faith. We should ask God to increase our faith on a regular basis. 1 Peter 1, verse 8 says this, Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the gold of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we talked a little bit last week about how the time is coming where we will see him. This one that we've had faith in for so many years throughout our lives. The one that we've never seen now, but we will see him face to face. And what a joyful time that's going to be. What a time of rejoicing for all Christians everywhere. All who respond to the gospel, all who humble themselves, admit that they're sinners and that they need a savior. And as soon as you do that, you become one of God's beloved children to live with him and rejoice with him for all eternity. So all praise, honor, and glory goes to God. And let's pray, Lord, thank you for the miracles of Christmas that we see in scripture. It's a fantastic story. It's a story that you planned ages and ages and ages ago from the foundation of the world. It was your plan not only to create us but you knew in advance that we would fall short, that we would sin, starting with Adam and Eve and coming down to our day and each one of us individually. But you shared good news. Your plan was to send your son 
to become an atonement for our sins, for all who believe in him. And Father, help our belief, help our faith, help our trust that we look to you and that we're encouraged every day because we do have a Savior. And as we discussed last week, Jesus is the guarantor of all your promises. It's because of him that your promises will be fulfilled in us if we believe, if we have faith. And Father, we look forward to the time that you'll send your son back to this earth. It's going to be a tumultuous, tumultuous time, but it's going to be the time of our reward. And uh, living with you and seeing you face to face for all eternity, our minds can't even grasp what that's going to be like, but it's going to be awesome. So, Father, we worship you today and in this season and help us all to rejoice. Help us all to have that joy that you give us of keeping our eyes and our mind on the big picture, what we're here for and what you've made us to be in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. We ask your blessing on everyone here today as we depart. Bring us back together again next week. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.